0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted just to thank our listeners in Australia and Hong Kong, Finland, Ukraine, and Iceland. There is something so nice to know that this resonates with people all over the world. And of course, a thank you to all of our listeners all over. Again, this is very, very exciting. And again, sending out our good wishes and our strength and support to the people of Ukraine during this time and all around the world where there are issues taking place, where people's rights are being either taken away or their safety is being compromised. And we offer our support. And for today, we have Daniel and Felicia, who have come back on our show for part two of their two-part conversation. It's hard to have a conversation with Daniel and Felicia that has to end at some point. There's so much to this story. There's so much that's taken place. And I have a feeling, too, that there are going to be so many times that people are going to be telling their story just as Daniel and Felicia do, where they say this is actually making more sense as I'm learning more, as I'm having more of an understanding of how this control takes place, but there's still some things left as unknowns. There are things that our brain unfortunately does where we make sense of things We make sense of the things that don't make sense. We do so much of the work for so many of the cult leaders who present us with situations that would blow people's minds, that don't make the least bit of sense and are maddening in how much they don't make sense. But we will often put together the disparate parts, the parts that don't come together just so we don't have cognitive dissonance just so it's not left as an unfinished puzzle in our heads, and we can then sleep that night. There is so much about what has happened with Daniel and with Felicia, where when they think back on it, they think, what? How is that 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 was possible? And that was our lives for so long. And how is it that it made sense at the time? We'll talk more about that after their interview is done. And if you missed the first episode, you may want to go back and listen. This story builds on itself. I'm excited to share the second half of this very moving and insightful conversation with Daniel and Felicia with you today. Here they are now. The idea that you had to go get makeup. To cover the bruises, and you couldn't tell people there why your face was this way and why you needed makeup. This dual existence sure was very hard. And it's like with Daniel just going to class and just doing things, just functioning somehow, knowing all this other stuff is going on that no one knows about, it's hard to have these two lives happening simultaneously. And what was it like for you, Felisa? Were there times you wanted to tell people what was going on? Absolutely.
1: I sounded. Ridiculous, because he gave me a story. You know, he sent me prepared. He's like, "This is what you're going to tell people if they see your face." And it was a horrible story. It was something about me tripping over some wire and I hit some welding equipment, and it just so happened like that I fell on like the side of my face. And I, I mean, and I did tell it because I was just so afraid, and I could tell that they didn't believe me. They were just like, you know, these were makeup artists, like. They're worldly people. They know better when they see uh, bruises, and and yeah, I mean, I did, I did want to say something, but what was going to happen after I said something? Then what happened? I say something, then what happens? What are they going to do? Can they do anything? Or like, if I go back and tell him that I told them, then he's going to beat me more. So, I just felt totally trapped. I mean, I could have said something, but I didn't have the wherewithal because of the situation that I was in to even consider that like that I was worth it to anybody else to care you know for anybody else to care enough to do something about what was happening to me like he made me feel worthless and useless so then no one was going to care that I was getting beaten you know that's how I felt And then the other thing I wanted to say, actually, about your you mentioned about the duality of of the experience, I think that's a huge reason why I regressed, like, during a lot of that time, like, those years between um, the apartment and uh, New Jersey, and when we finally got to between the, when I got to New York, and then when we finally, when we got to New Jersey, it's just one big block of time. I can tell you things happen, but I can't tell you it happened this year or around um, this time. Um, so it's just really flashes. And like, I definitely regressed. I couldn't have conversations with anybody. I wasn't, I wasn't intelligible. I know, like, I know that much. I remember little bits of me just walking around mumbling to myself or like singing songs. And like, I was just not present. That was how I hoped, you know, like escaping.
0: Right. And also talking to your family, if that were to happen and then you couldn't tell them and you might be wondering, did you bring this on? And the dual relationship, you have to play with your loved ones. It's one of the hardest.
1: Right. And he isolated me from them. So I couldn't say anything from them. You know, they were trying to kill me. Santos and Yelitsa were trying to poison me. My parents were behind the whole plot. Everyone was getting paid to have me, Larry, and Talia and Isabella killed. I mean, it's absolutely absurd, you know, when I say it now, but the state that he had us in, or at least had, I'm going to speak for myself, the state that he had me in, I was so terrified of what he was going to do to me and everyone else. And I was like, okay, you know, like whatever you say, Larry.
0: Right. And I want to ask Daniel about this. And I just want to say that. One of the things that's most controlling as a means of control is fear. When someone can convince you that the people who you really can trust the most are the people you can trust the least, then you're going to lean on the person who you think is protecting you from them and you're going to need them more. And that happens over and over again. And so often people's histories are rewritten In these groups, so that you do think people are up to things and they've always been somehow. Uh, And thank goodness you're now being protected from them by this person who is your perpetrator. I mean, it really is, you know, head spinning. No wonder you were mumbling to yourself and singing to yourself. I mean, you had to go far away in your brain, I think, to survive. Daniel, what are are your thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly for me, fear was a huge element. I think once someone makes it clear that they're going to punish you with physical violence for doing something wrong, but your ability to actually figure out what it means to do something wrong is taken away from you. You know, it felt to me like being in a maze where the walls are invisible and also electrified. So it's like, you think you can kind of navigate, but you're constantly just walking into an electric fence. And then I guess, you know, that feeling of sort of living in two worlds really resonates with me. And it was really weird the ways that that continued after I left, you know, and obviously with less, you know, I wasn't going home to Larry. So it's very different. I don't want to be equating them, but a very weird experience for my brain to be kind of supposedly moving forward with my life, forming new relationships, all these things, but having this whole formative experience that I had not processed and had not integrated that I was just not sharing or talking about. And I think that, you know, when I was first contacted by the reporters who broke the story and I was the first survivor that they talked to, they were going to tell the story wrong. All they had come across was the sort of blackmail that Larry had put out on the internet about our friend Claudia. And they thought they were telling a story about a girl at Sarah Lawrence who had poisoned people. And I thought that if my friends were going to exit, it's hard enough to bring these two worlds together. But if the outside world's believes the narrative that your abuser has been telling, then there isn't a world to bring together. You know, it's just, they're the same, you know, so you would just be exiting into the abuse. That was why it felt like there was this onus on me to set the record straight. And that kind of is, is really the only reason I wrote my book at all, because there were all these people who, after that story came out, were ready willing and able to tell whatever horror story version of this they could without any input from the survivors and everyone was still inside you know so it was just about like just trying to make sure it was told accurately because i i was just trying to empathize with my friends who were still in and knew that if i was still in larry's grasp and then the whole world was looking at this as this like inaccurate a horror version that, you know, he fed obviously off of conspiracy and paranoia. So it was like any little inaccuracy would help bolster his version of events. It just had to be told right. And so that's kind of how we get to now in this documentary and everything.
0: Right. And it's so important and it's, it's so hard to figure out a way to have it be understood when you're still trying to figure out how it all happened. How do you put words to it? Right. I mean, it really is a very difficult thing to do. I think it's very important to know about what happened and to so that you can say, ah, that's that. That's not me. It's that. It's that technique. It's that progression of techniques. And it's the isolation along with those techniques. And it's a lot of things that were orchestrated. You know, it's like this well oiled machine that you just happen to get into. And that there are people out there who have these skills or this disorder that makes it possible. I wonder also just about it being on a college campus. Here, you know, the irony for a lot of people, I I will often encourage people who have come out of these situations to take classes, to go to school, to learn to question again, that it's okay to disagree that you can voice something in front of people and not have to worry, but to have it be concurrent that this is happening while you're in class, while you're trying to expand your mind, or you're on a college campus with people who are just learning and you have this huge secret. I can only imagine what that was like And Daniel. You were, you went to your graduation ceremony. I, I was so struck by this scene where there was such a disconnection because they just didn't know. And they're talking about college being this great achievement and this wonderful thing. And, you know, you can walk in like the walking wounded and they just had no idea. So what was that like for you to just have them, the powers that be just did not know?
2: Well, first of all, I want to say that in the, the time after I left became for me, highly strategic for me, that graduation ceremony was about walking this tightrope between keeping my family satisfied and not really digging into what had happened too much because I just wasn't ready to deal with it. So I was going to go to graduation, but I also knew that there was a pretty good shot that Talia might be there, which meant that Larry might be there. And so having to think about, you know, and I'm going to have to go on stage and so I will be like there. And is it possible for me to do that and then make sure that I kind of disappear into a group of people who, you know, are new friends I've made who don't know anything about this so that I can't really be approached. Is there a way I can exit from the tent as quickly as possible and get without them following me? Or is it better? You know, so everything for me ran through this filter of how can I both keep the world from really knowing what happened, because that would represent maybe me going against Larry and then him being more incentivized to come after me and just avoid contact in any way because the fear was always you know, I had this what felt like a very real fear of like the car that I knew Larry had access to pulling up and me being kind of like pulled in or, you know, and gone again. Right. Right. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay.
0: Okay. So then um back to you Felicia. I'm curious about you getting to this place of needing to trust your mind again. Everyone in the group needs to do that. Everyone in every group needs to do that. Everyone in every relationship like that needs to do that. I'm specifically asking you though, because I know that that's something that once people see the documentary, they're going to hope that you, Daniel, have a good life and you're never going to be mistreated that way again. And that you and your family get to spend as much time as you decide you want to spend with them again. No one's going to get in the way and you get to have healthy relationships and a good career, et cetera. And I think for you, Felice, that people are going to hope that you're all right and that you've been able to get back on track, but you've been able to gift yourself again with trusting you. And I know that takes some doing. And so how's that been for you? Just getting that sense that you have some control over your own sense of things, over taking in evidence of your senses and trusting it and all of that. What's that been like for you?
1: It's like I was born again in the sense that like life was so dark and so sad and bleak with Larry that I mean i I didn't hope for, I mean, I did hope for better, but I didn't expect it anymore. And and it was just going to be this horribleness, you know, every day for the rest of my life. And then once I was able to finally break free, it felt like the sun was brighter. I could hear the birds chirping, like the water was so clean and clear and delicious. Everything just turned from like black and white to color. The world just like came back alive for me. And a huge part of the that process was really, you know, sharing my story and share and sharing what was happening with me, and sharing my thoughts uh, real time and being vulnerable, um, and just letting myself just be and exist and question, and the answers came, you know, like the answers came. So sharing my story was really was really like a huge part of how how I was able to trust myself again, because there's something about saying it out loud that just makes it more, makes those thoughts more real. And it's like, wait a minute, did I really know Bernard Carrick? Like in my mind for years, Larry said that I did, right? So then someone asked me and I said, of course I knew Bernard Carrick. You know, but then I said it out loud, and Zach leaves. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I did not know that man. I never knew Bernard Carrick. So that was really, that whole process of talking to him, doing the interviews, and then having the time alone to reflect on what I had just talked about was huge. Like, it brought me back to reality. It was very powerful and. And like br- bridging my consciousness from pre-Larry to the present.
0: Right. I, I want to say about believing that something was true that wasn't true. You know, it is something that is possible for all of us to do. There was a book uh, a couple decades ago called The Courage to Heal, which I think for a lot of people, help people know that it really c- can be talked about if you're abused or sexually abused w- in a family system, etc. cetera. The problem with it, was that it said that if you have any memories, any block of time that you can't remember, those are repressed memories and it means something absolutely happened to you. So that's not necessarily true. So a lot of people were getting uh, accused of things, family members, et cetera, things that happened. And therapists were jumping on that bandwagon and saying, yes, because now they had sort of an answer to the question of how come I can't remember? Oh, that's because of this. Our memories are so malleable. And we also want to please... And we want to get out of a sticky situation where we can tell that someone's unhappy with us if we seem to not remember the way they want us to remember it and not remember it as a fact. But when you spend time away, exactly this thing happens. The spell of it starts to be broken and you say, oh, actually, no, I believed it at the time. And I also knew I had to believe it at the time because then it made everything else make sense. And it made this person not angry with me. Right. But. You know, it's hard to get back into what is and what isn't and what happened and what didn't. But once you start to put it all together, yes, you can start to feel like you can see again and you can breathe again. And and I'm wondering, Daniel, for you, was that something that was talked about, sort of how you should feel about your past or your family or, you know, people you could trust or not trust?
2: I think for all of us, Larry was really motivated to try to get us to dig into exactly what you described. Any period of time, if you had trouble recalling something, he would, you know, sort of dig his crowbar into that and try to pull out that, you know, well, if you can't remember, is it possible that this person came into your room when you were young? What sort of shape or can you, could it have been your brother, you know? And you're like, uh, maybe it does kind of feel like that figures my brother you know, and then, and just trying to walk you step by step through, you know, did this person touch you, or did, you know, and, and once you started to acknowledge the possibility, it was like, that was enough. And then of course, it's the combination of, it kept him from being mad at you. And we were rewarded if you had like a revelation, you know, or a breakthrough or whatever, if you realize this thing, you know, there was the specter of punishment because all this, uh, these interrogation or like kind of pseudo therapy sessions would begin with being accused of somehow sabotaging Larry. So, you know, you knew that there was the threat of punishment and often that was happening throughout the questioning But then it was like everything would be relieved once you would say the right thing. And it was at a certain point, and you can, I think, really see this in the footage in the documentary, you know, you're probing for just trying to figure out what is it that he wants to hear, because I will tell him whatever it is. And then for all of your friends, they're watching this happen and they see you say, you know, yes, I did this or yes, I can remember. Of course, I did this thing. And you're like fully fabricating things. But for them, it looks, you know, they don't know the internal process that's happening, even though they've experienced it themselves. So it's a self-reinforcing system. So insidious.
0: Right. Oh, it is so insidious. To play with someone's mind, too, is really one of the most cruel things that you can do. That's the evil mastermind sociopathic part. I mean, just knowingly driving someone mad. And
1: it's all done under the guise of help. Like, that's what makes it even more like vile that he was claiming to be helping everyone
0: when in
2: fact he was just, you know, out to hurt. Right. Right. Yes.
0: And Daniel, you were going to say.
2: Oh, I just wanted to add as far as thinking about kind of life afterwards. And, and I think it ties in with this. Larry convinced me from the beginning that any experience of feeling sad or uncomfortable or like angst, like these were all really serious and bad and unusual problems. And he proposed kind of a future where you could essentially be happy all the time, which is kind of what I wanted from when I was really young. I always was like, why do I feel this way? I want to be happy. And I think that a lot of people when they hear this story, you know, they desire like a really simple narrative conclusion where it's like, and now we're happy forever. And I just feel like it's important to say like, You know, I have clinical depression, like so does my dad, who avoided mentioning that to me for most of my life. My grandma, his mom killed herself, you know, because she was living in a time when like no one was talking about that, especially for a woman who's a single mother, whatever. And like, I embrace that that's part of my experience, you know, and I just, I I feel like it's just so important to be like, you know, I... I feel so much joy and I love, like I have so many wonderful friends and I get to do all these amazing things. And I've had my heart broken two times since I left, you know, and like, that's part of living too. And all of that's like awesome. And I'm so happy I get to have all of those experiences and they're part of like being a person, you know, but Larry tried to demonize anything that was uncomfortable.
1: I mean, I'm just so happy for Daniel that, that you are in that place where you know you've had all like you know the breadth and depth of the human experience at this point and that's beautiful like that is being human that is being a person and it's horrible that Larry made all of us think that that feeling anything but quote happiness was a bad thing. Like it's it's nothing, it's not bad, it's not good, it just is and it's part of life. So I'm
2: I'm just really happy for you that you're that you're in that place with it, yeah. it's also worth tying this back to part of his ideology as well. I'm i am so mad at stoicism now. um, and like and for me, the ways that this is tied into like masculinity, but this idea that you could just choose not to feel bad, you know. And so then he'd be hurting you and he'd be like, but, you know, You get to decide this is just happening. You get to decide if it's good or bad. So you're deciding it's bad. Just stop deciding that. You know, it's like, so you're not allowed to have feelings. You're definitely not allowed to have your own feelings.
0: No,
1: definitely not. And I mean, and I think as far for me, I haven't had my heart broken again yet because I'm still, I'm still on the mend or, you know, I'm not there yet. But I I have had highs and lows and sadness and, you know, especially with the pandemic, you know, like we have, we just went through this horrific shared trauma and, you know, I had a lot of family members pass away. I had to deal with a lot of hardship after I walked away from all of that. And it it wasn't easy. And I was, you know, I definitely cried. and was sad and angry and frustrated but I'm but baseline I am grateful and happy to be alive and to be free you know that I can come and go as I please from where I live I have a key to my apartment only I have the key I can open the refrigerator if I want to I can go to the drugstore and get some chocolate. I can go to the, I can take the longest shower that I want. I can do all those things. And I, for that, I am grateful. And that, and that makes, that makes me happy. You know, I appreciate, I appreciate everything else so
0: much for that. Beautiful thing. And it's true. I mean, I think people don't realize how much of your life was like being a POW and you didn't have right basic freedom. You didn't, you didn't, you couldn't. You couldn't do anything without getting permission. Everything's given over to somebody else, even how you're supposed to think and feel. And taking that all back, yes, it is the simple pleasures that are so meaningful. And for people who will be watching the documentary, such as they'll understand the reference of accessing the refrigerator and going to the bathroom. What I I think is really amazing too, just about feeling, is that you should be able to access all of your emotions, the spectrum of them. And when you have someone telling you, you can't, or you shouldn't, you don't really learn how to master it, how to be okay with it, how to accept it. You learn to somehow ignore it or be afraid of it. What I've found, even if you you have someone who's really domineering and really manipulative, usually the person who wants to control you needs to demonize the feelings that are probably the strongest within you that are the most natural within you that you could then use to have as a signifier about that something's wrong here. Uh, It's usually anger that you're not supposed to have or sadness. And I think sometimes people who are running these things just don't want to have to care about your sadness. So they need for you to not have it, but they really don't want to deal with your anger and they really will disarm you so that you don't have it. But all of those feelings are what make you, you. And and I like the way you said it, Daniel, that you've had your heart broken and that's okay. It's about being alive. And you've learned how to make your way through that and not be afraid of it. And the person in charge also is the one who usually has the least amount of ability of handling things of anyone in the room. And they also usually have the fewest amount of actual ability to be in the world, kind of succeed in the wild, which you find out, I think, later on too, because they don't have a day job, usually. They just have... The power that they've taken away from other people and situations they've orchestrated. But besides that, left to their own devices, I don't think they'd achieve anything close to what both of you would achieve in this world. What do you think about that as you think about him? The whole apartment and
1: what he did to us was a projection of his own English onto us. And each of us were like a, a piece of him that he was trying to control or deal with or repress Daniel Lee with sexuality me with my career I mean you would not believe how many times he talked about how much he wanted to be a doctor so he hated me for it because I was you know I was actually a doctor what's difficult which you know I didn't know him beforehand but I think this part makes what he did more vile he managed to have a wife and two children, and he worked on Wall Street. He obviously made a lot of money somehow, had a huge house in New Jersey, had all of these influential friends, had this life. I mean, I don't know how, quote, functional he was in that. He passed for normal, and then he gets out of jail. So then, you know, he was able to be a functional person, and, like, he knew what to do to pass you know, with the rest of us. But then he somehow, I don't know what happened that then makes him just turn, I guess, all of whatever is wrong with him all onto us. And then, and then it becomes this nightmare that we lived. It didn't make sense. And it's not like he wasn't, you know, he had proven himself to be competent and capable to make money be successful out in the world as a quote normal person but then somehow with us i don't know what happened but then you know it it turned into into this i'm still trying to like work through that part of like understanding him it makes it more ugly because he knew better and then he turned around and got out of jail and just like unleashed like evil
0: on
2: everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly. Daniel, what do you think?
2: You know, so I was working pretty closely with Zach throughout the process of, you know, the the research and everything throughout this documentary. And so, you know, I really appreciated that the focus was very much on the survivors and not on Larry. But that being said, you know, I, I heard some of the things that they were turning up about his past. And I, I think that unsurprisingly, a lot of those things that looked like him functioning in the world were a facade. And he, um, and you kind of referenced this conceptually earlier, Rachel, but I think he was trying out versions of this at different scales earlier in his life before he met his family and this kind of, he owned a club and some of the things that they did, you know, it's like the 80s and the things that these men did that he could get other men to do were pretty horrifying. There's something about like a, a sort of a viewing room where they were like, well, would watch people do like sex acts. It's pretty horrifying. And then with his family, when they had the house in New Jersey and his wife and his kid and his wife's family, I think he was enacting some pretty some pretty horrible sexual violence on them. And I wonder, I mean, this is where we get beyond my expertise, but his ability to manage a seemingly normal life, it, it would keep crumbling. You know, he would keep like failing in big ways, you know, so he... he Ended up in prison, or he'd get caught for something, or his like he would lose all his money, or whatever. And especially it seems like when his wife left him. I just wonder if you're this kind of delusional, malignant narcissist, and you're you've constructed this worldview that you need in order to maintain your sense of self when the people that you've manipulated. Call you out, I have to think that that really is quite difficult to incorporate. And I feel like we've seen him sort of degrade a lot over time. And I think that process was even sort of starting before we ever met him. And so we encountered a version of Larry that was just more twisted and trying harder to survive in a more broken way.
0: What I think is so interesting, going back to something that was mentioned at the beginning about how he just started to fall apart. That's often what happens when somebody can't keep getting away with something, and this is the only trick they have. They can't really do a lot else with the same level of success. I mean, it's hard to call it success, but in their minds, it's success, really torturing people, you know, but there is something about that when they start to see that they're slipping that where they don't have enough to catch themselves before they just start fragmenting and really falling apart. They'll sometimes get more paranoid, they'll sometimes get more militaristic, they'll sometimes stop making sense, they'll be they'll contradict themselves. They're just trying to hold it together and seeing what they can use that might still work. And you see this franticness that comes over them because they really are scared. This is not for anyone to feel sorry for them. Because when, right? So when someone is this way in the world and they know they're harming people, what is their job is to say, I have this disorder. And I seem to drive people crazy and I enjoy it. I think I need help with this. So if they're not able or willing to do that, I don't feel sorry for them at all when they start falling apart. And it also just means that they won't have the ability to do this as much in such a fine-tuned way. And I'm happy to see it happen it happened with jim jones of jonestown too he just started getting more and more paranoid and more militaristic and stopped really making sense and became an addict and so you see that you see that that this this power becomes a poison in a lot of people's systems just like it was a poison in yours while you were with it and they do start to to fall apart and then you feel like oh now i can breathe a little like they're busy in their own heads and doing their Okay, now I get to actually free myself of this. They're not even sort of watching me so much anymore. They're too consumed with something else, which can feel actually really, really nice. i'm I'm curious about his daughter because i I would love to know more about how she's doing and just being his child what that what that's been like. And if any of you have information,
2: Zach the director, his power that was so impressive is his ability to um gain to get a conversation with people, uh, it's really wild. Um, I never thought that anyone would be able to talk to Felicia, Santo, to Larry. Uh, that was like a fantasy for years for me. And he seemed to have little to no problem. And and you know, and he managed that with me for, in the first place as well. So. He did manage to kind of strike up a relationship with Talia um, and they, you know, would have phone calls. She never wanted to participate in the documentary. She's in a a maybe kind of tenuous legal position. Um, She's been named a co-conspirator. So, you know, I don't know a lot about where she's at beyond that. I I think she's working as a paralegal. I, I think the way that Zach, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but the way that he had Described it is. It's kind of like she was avoiding all of the news around this, but she has started to see maybe that her dad was a bad guy. You know, so that's wild to me. Like her whole life was about defending him. So I don't know how you know. And she witnessed a lot of these things that happened. But yeah, so I don't know how you integrate and reconcile uh, in her position. Not to mention that she's been exposed to someone like Larry since she was born. So, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So there are so many things that you can say um, through social media, through the documentary, writing books, et cetera. And there are always things that have been left unsaid, unspoken still. And I want to give you each a chance if there's a message that you want to be able to get out, even a message for each other, but just something you haven't yet had a chance to say that helps people understand what you've been through or things that you want to be able to express to this other person who you've been in the trenches with. I mean, both of you will be, you know, forever connected. So I'm opening the floor to both of you as we finish up. So what do you think? You can take it away,
2: Daniel. It's hard because there are so many things that I want to say. And part of the challenge of an experience like this is that it's so, you know, that documentary compresses, a decade into three hours, you know, and, and in not just any decade, but a decade where almost 24 hours a day, we were having these interactions, you know, and for me only a few years to be clear. So, you know, a lot of time and, a, and then really complex psychological experience. I, I will say the thing that is hard for me to get across, but feels really important is I want to be having this conversation about Uh, an experience like we had, of course, of control with a malignant narcissist alongside conversations. But, you know, you said that you worked with uh, survivors of domestic violence. You know, I think of, as I mentioned, like having like an abusive boss, like I want to be having this sort of larger conversation about power, you know, and how, how vulnerable we are to authority. And I look back on this experience and, of course, fantasize about, you know, I wish We've been able to turn to each other and say, like, do you feel like this isn't okay?" And of course that was impossible. And I don't feel any shame about not having been able to do that given the circumstances. But I hope that people, you know, across the the rainbow of exploitative circumstances that exist out there, if possible, like feel empowered to turn to the person next to you uh, if it's safe. You know, like if you're in like a workplace where you're being abused, you know, it's like we have to kind of we have to apply the principle of like unionization to all fields, including like families, you know, like everywhere.
0: Right. I love I mean, the idea of power. One of the things that is taken away uh, so often when someone wants to have power over you is one of your constitutional rights, freedom of speech. Um, because talking is very powerful and there is something very worrisome to people who are trying to control you when you get to share notes with other people. And then you might also combine forces and combine your power, um, which is very threatening. A lot of the people I work with also have been in some of these awful teen treatment residential uh, centers or forced conversion centers. You were not allowed to talk to each other. And there was a reason for that because you couldn't conspire then. And you couldn't say, is this happening to you too? And not feel alone with it, etc. So I think piercing the isolation, piercing the silence is something so terrifying for people because they know what they're going to get, but still you need to unite with the people around you with your information. And there are a lot of people to in like religious organizations where or in other calls where people are spying on you and they get kudos for tell or ratting you out. So you go to talk to someone thinking you're opening up and you can trust them and you can't because that's how they are surviving by funneling your information up the, you know, channels. And then also for people where where people are afraid of people talking, usually a leader or a controller, someone's trying to take your power away will defame you to other people you're not trustworthy. You're a pathological liar. Don't believe you. The teen treatment places also say that, but they tell the parents that their teens are pathological liars that don't believe it. And so that's one of the signs to me of an unhealthy group, unhealthy relationship, unhealthy or a cult in general, when you're not allowed to talk, when it's not safe to talk, Or when people try to get to people first and say, don't believe this person. There has to be a reason. It's so diagnostic. So I think you're onto something, Daniel. We can talk more about this if you want to expand on. I'm happy to work with you on on this because I I see it all the time in so many different ways, but it's always the same theme of disempowerment through a lack of communication. And also calling like someone's privacy is now secrecy. You know, it's giving it a negative connotation. So you're doing something wrong, etc. Very interesting. What do you think, Felicia?
1: I totally agree with Daniel. The whole issue of power dynamics, it's really what it boils down to. It doesn't matter what we call it. If we call it a cult, coercive control, undue influence, at the end of the day, it's somebody telling you, like getting you to do something you don't want to do. And that happens all the time. Like we make concessions all the time like all day as we're going through life. Some of those concessions are less dangerous than others. And we have to be, you know, I think being very self-aware and being willing to question your own thoughts and being able to do that introspection. Oh, and also it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to take a wrong turn and realize you're on the wrong road and turn the car around and get back on the road. Like there is no shame in realizing that you made a mistake and correcting it. And that's where so much of what, you know, their power lies where, you know, they hold you in shame, embarrassment, guilt, and then you're just, you're caught and you're like, well, I'm too embarrassed to go tell somebody that this happened to me because I said this never would happen to me. It's okay. We're human. We will fail. We all fail. And, but the point is that we keep trying, like we fail, but we keep trying. The point is to just keep at it. Like no one can stop you. Only you stop you.
0: You know, with the idea of making a mistake, a lot of people feel very anxious about making any decision because making a mistake is not okay. It's so panic inducing because you're going to be given crap forever and it's going to be remembered. And you're then going to be that person who made that mistake. (laughs) Like, oh my God, you like constantly dig yourself out of some hole. But you know, that idea, like really like, how come he couldn't let it go? Because he needed material he could keep using over and over again. And it really wasn't anything. Right. It wasn't anything of substance. Right. And so you make a mistake. That's how you learn. Exactly. It means you're a human being. The person who couldn't tolerate being called on to, to having made a mistake is him. Because I'm sure he never said, Oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. No,
2: no. Yeah. It was so extreme for me after the fear of, of, making mistakes and and to the degree that it became really hard to speak, you know, to be in a social situation and to start, I mean, to start saying anything, but especially I couldn't say something without knowing the end of the sentence, you know, I needed to, I couldn't, I wasn't free enough to make a mistake in casual conversation and to be free to kind of like improvise and be, and that's how you, exist and like get to discover yourself is by having people that you feel safe enough with that you can just kind of like play I guess you know and and it was just so hard not to mention like having a job and making a mistake and being like why am I breaking out into a full body sweat and not telling anyone and trying to fix the mistake before anyone finds out and like you know Right,
1: and then you you can't get out in the world, and you realize that it's not like that. That people do make
0: mistakes, and you just just deal with it, and you move on. Right, and so here he says he's preparing you for the world, but no, just his world, not the world. It's such an important distinction. You just don't have the luxury to know it at the time. If you do make a mistake, and someone just berates you endlessly for it, you can turn to them and say, like, "What is your problem?" Yeah, <laughs> really. Like, are you almost done having your little tantrum about that? Can we move on? You know, right. <laughs> like, it's that's their issue, not yours. So, and I actually, there was someone who I worked with for many years who was so afraid of running into the person who was running that little group that they were in, and they did. They still lived in the town, so they were they were accosted by them and were berated, and they knew that they weren't afraid of them anymore when the person just was like in their face and spitting in their face, and when they finished. This person who was my client said, Are you about done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the person was shocked and he said, You feel better now? <laughs> and he just walked away. He's like, Woo. <laughs> he was like, free. You know, like glad you were able to get that off your chest. Anyway, I'm gonna go over that. You know. Bye-bye. Yeah. Of course his heart was racing a little but he was like, he was sort of thinking if i if that happened what do i want to say but how do i want to show this person they don't have power over me cuz the only power they had before was the power they intimidated from me and it wasn't that's not real power in the world that's why these people usually can't function without doing this they don't know how to actually exist in the world without it it's like their air it's like they're they're like parasitic people anyway Thank you so much to, to both of you for your wisdom on this and for being willing to share this for yourself, for yourself, for your own healing, but also because it does such an amazing job for education and for prevention and for people to know this can happen in so many different places that you don't have to go to a mountaintop or an ashram or wherever is sort of that stereotype. And you can be in a dorm, you could be wherever. This is about the nature of the power differential of the relationship and that can exist anywhere so thank you so much for clarifying that for us and i wish you the best of everything and i hope to be able to talk to you again thank you thank you thank you
2: thank you so much i really appreciate it this is great one
0: more thing before you go Thank you so much to Felicia and to Daniel. Thank you for your openness. Thank you for wanting to come on camera and sharing with the audience about what happened to you. It's not at all an easy thing to do. I give you so much credit. It's a very hard thing also when you are bright, when you are capable, when you're accomplished to say something happened to me that I didn't see happening. Something happened to me. It was like a runaway train. I couldn't get off. And I'm still trying to understand what happened. And I'm still trying to understand why I went along with it. That's usually the big question of the hour. And so I think so much of that goes to how we define going along with it. Because sometimes when you are made to feel that you really don't have a choice... That this is the only way for you to be able to achieve the goals that you've been told you're going to be able to achieve and only achieve through someone like Larry Ray. And when you're told that these are things that are being given to you to test you, to see your resolve, to see your strength, to see what you're made of, you can sometimes stay in something because you want to prove something about yourself. And that's where your friends are. And it's where your friends are being treated and mistreated. And you don't want to abandon them. And you also don't want to seem like a quitter. You want to show that you are committed to whatever it is that you've been told you're supposed to be committed to and that you're not someone who is too weak for that. You're not someone who's going to stop in the middle. You also have potentially seen how people were treated when they did quit or when they did question, when they did stop in the middle. And you don't want to be that person. There are so many reasons people stay, but there's so many reasons too that people don't see what's happening in front of them and see it often after they've left. They see it often when they watch video or they hear audio of themselves and they think, what was that? And at the time, that seemed to make sense. It doesn't make sense anymore now that I'm listening to it or now that I'm watching it. And look at how unhappy I looked. And look at how lost I looked when I felt like I was doing something that was of the utmost importance, but now I realize it wasn't at all. And look how cruel the leader was. I mean, that comes through when people listen to themselves during that time, when they watch video, they can see something that we talked about first time, which was about how human beings are being treated like sport. One of the things that is really very telling when I deal with a lot of people who have left things like this is that they're often made to feel like this leader in this situation, Larry Ray, is giving them a chance to have something that they could have never had before, is giving them a chance to be something they couldn't have had before. And when you have that situation, you have people then who will be waiting, who'll be waiting for that to to happen. It's like when Felicia was talking about how Larry Ray just kept sort of hanging this thing over their head, which was that if you just do what I say, basically, if you follow me, your life will be able to get back on track, be able to be back to normal. You'll be able to go back to the life that you had. You'll be able to go back to following this wonderful path and being a doctor, etc. And a conversation we had about it. During the interview, is something that I wanted to talk a little bit more about now. When you don't realize that the person with you is the one who has taken something away, but they just stress that they're able to give you something or give you something back, you might see them as benevolent. You might see them as a ticket to having a good life. You might forget. You might not notice that they're the ones who have taken it away from you. It shouldn't be that Felicia or anyone needed to get back. To anything. She already had it. Who took it away? And why was it taken away? And why is that not noticed? Part of the reason that it's not noticed is that you are made to feel by a controller, usually, that you are making choices for every step of the way, all along the way. So somehow, she probably was made to feel that she chose to give up her path and her life for this for a period of time. And then Because it was, quote unquote, her decision, even though it wasn't, but she was made to feel it was. Then, someone, the savior in this situation, Larry Ray, can come in and say, I know a way to help you get that back. If he were truly honest, he would say, I'm the one who took it away from you and convinced you that it was your choice. And now I'm going to offer it back to you like breadcrumbs along a path that you have to follow so that you can get all that back, all that back that you never knew you were giving away, all that back that you never knew I was taking away, and no one had the right to take away. When I think about Daniel also talking about his self-esteem, about being a strong person, about being someone who felt capable, and suddenly he wasn't able to make a decision on his own. He wasn't able to feel confident without checking in with Larry Ray. He was feeling also like somehow it was okay to be treated a certain way, to be mistreated a certain way, because it was going to be for his benefit. Where did his life go? And along the way, I'm sure he was made to feel that he was choosing to go along this path, which was going to make him feel very much derailed, and that Larry was his ticket back on track, not being open about the fact that he's the one that took him off course to begin with. I hear a lot about people who will say to me, even after leaving something like this, but I gave my consent. I gave my permission. And so part of the reason people feel that way is because they give permission and they give their consent when they're asked. Is this something that you want to be able to do? Do you want your life to be better? Do you want to learn things that are going to help you for the rest of your life? Well, very few people are going to say no to that. So they think they've given their consent. They think it was their choice. They think they're being given an opportunity unlike any before. But people also give their consent for something that is presented a certain way that is never presented completely honestly when it's offered with a whole bunch of deception and there's lying by omission and lying by commission. So some information is just told that's absolutely false and other information is purposely left out. You know, you can give your consent for things when you only know a little tiny bit of the actual information about what the true intention is for you and what you're going to be giving up and what is going to be done to you and what kind of shape you're going to be in when you say, this is the direction I want to go in and I want to trust this person, this Larry Ray person. But people also will say that they gave their consent when they were set up in a situation That was a no win, where it was either that they had to make a decision to do something that felt very uncomfortable or go back into the world, which they've already now started being convinced was a waste of time for them, or was a world that didn't appreciate them, or was filled with people they could never trust, just really not a good place. And so, based on the amount of conditioning they've had to really see things differently. They think the only choice that's left for them to give their quote unquote consent to is a choice away from the life that they knew and towards this life that their controller is giving them. So they should feel lucky to be able to be given this option because the other one is not good anymore and is not safe anymore. And so when you're caught in what we call a false dilemma, you can feel like you're making the better decision, but really, you're just being convinced to make a decision that works for the person who's making you make that decision. It never works for you. It'll always be in their best interest. So if you ever find yourself caught in a situation where you feel like you have to make a decision and it doesn't feel quite right and you're being told this is the best decision for you and this is really the best thing ever, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think, how does this fit into my life Or am I going to have to leave my life in order to have this other existence? And I want you to ask yourself, how does this work for me in the long run? How does it even work for me in the short run? And how much does it benefit the person who's putting me in this situation? And sometimes you'll know based on looking at the people around you. Do they seem happier? Do they seem in a better space emotionally? Do they seem further along with their goals? Often not. They are further along in supplying what the leader wants them to supply, devotion, free labor, drama, because usually leaders like this love drama. But really, what are you getting from it? Take a moment and take stock. What are you getting from it? What are the people around you actually getting from it? And are they looking exhausted while the leader's looking great and happy and well-fed and well-rested, or at least more than you? That will mean that the situation itself is built to serve the leader and not the people following the leader. Notice the evidence around you. Take it in. See how exhausted everyone looks except for the leader. Notice why that might be. Even if you don't have an answer, at least just notice it. Take in taken the evidence of your senses, as Dr. Margaret Singer used to say, it is an important thing to do. And especially during a time that you are being taught to not follow your instincts, to not really trust the evidence of your senses, still know that that moment of just wondering is worthy enough for you to write that down even if you're not trusting yourself anymore. Notice something, write it down. That's very often going to be your inner guide, your inner voice that's speaking to you. And it's trying very hard to be heard over the voice of the leader. It gets very dim at times, but know that it talks to you much more accurately than the person who is trying to control your life. I wish you well, and I wish Felicia and Daniel and all others who are involved in that group and all other groups, a time of healing and good health and safety out there. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at indoctrination show at gmail.com and for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination